This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss how to stay healthy while traveling with Dr. Caitlin Zorn, N.D., We'll learn about the science of nanobiology with PhD candidate Bram Bussin. We'll discover how journaling can help you with your emotional regulation with life coach and yogi Radha Metro Midkiff. And lastly, we'll find out what every woman needs to know about ovarian cancer with clinic leader Leo B. Twiggs. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria have become a rapidly growing threat to public health. Each year, they account for more than 2.8 million infections, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Without new antibiotics, even common injuries and infections harbor the potential to become lethal. Scientists are now one step closer to eliminating that threat, thanks to a Texas A&M University-led collaboration that has developed a new family of polymers capable of killing bacteria without inducing antibiotic resistance by disrupting the membrane of those microorganisms. The new polymers synthesized could help fight antibiotic resistance in the future by providing antibacterial molecules that operate through a mechanism against which bacteria do not seem to develop resistance. I'll be joined by Dr. Caitlin Zorn in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Dr. Caitlin Zorn is a Guelph naturopathic doctor who uses a blend of modern science and traditional healing therapies to treat the whole person. Both her own health experiences and helping others with their own has shaped the way she practices. Caitlin's journey has helped her develop an interest in mental health, anxiety, depression, and other such things, pain management, fatigue, and women's health. And for more information about Caitlin, you can always visit drcaitlinzorn.com. Welcome back, Caitlin. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. So this time of year, I'm not much of a like a holiday season traveler, but I think that mm-hmm. that kind of keeps me in the minority. I think everybody's like looking to get away from from the yucky weather and, and mm-hmm. go traveling. So so what are some of the common challenges that, you know, these travelers will face to maintain their health during their trip? So I'd say the biggest challenge is probably the change in your routine, uh, maybe waking up at different times and stuff like that. Also just being exposed to different environments and germs, especially if you're if you're flying, um, you know, jet lag, stuff like that. Uh, maybe not eating regularly. So yeah, all those all those things can 
impact how people feel when they're traveling. Yeah, I mean, there are certain countries I won't visit anymore because let's just say Montezuma's revenge is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and so I, I think the key, I, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. The, re- the change in routine really seems to impact me more than anything else. Like when I'm traveling, mm-hmm. like, like I have a very regimented exercise routine, which, you know, it does like we do do active stuff when we're away, but it's just different. Right. So like you never know mm-hmm. if you're getting the same workout or maybe even more of a workout. Like, for example, walking up and down Manhattan, you're going to get a lot of steps in. But is that the same thing mm-hmm. as, as a weight class? I don't know. So let's talk about, let's start, let's start in a different direction. Let's talk about supplements and which ones you would recommend for travelers as they're Mm -hmm. abroad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot that we can do here to support feeling better when we're traveling. Um, But my go-tos would probably be vitamin C, zinc, and echinacea for immune support um, just because these help to stimulate the immune system when you're being exposed to new viruses and stuff like that. Um, and it's also helpful to take when you are um, in enclosed areas with a lot of people or on the plane um, just to boost your immune defenses. And then the next one would be probiotics for gut health uh, and making sure that these are enteric coated. And even getting a travel-related probiotic can help to prevent travel sickness. And oh, I, then, I, I didn't know that existed. Yeah. So what, so what is, what's the difference between a regular probiotic and a travel probiotic? Yeah, there's just different strains in the travel one that can um, that are targeting the more foodborne illnesses that you can get. You know, travelers, um, diarrhea, and, and stuff like that. So, can prevent help to prevent that uh, when you're eating foods that you're not used to eating. And then also, you know, when we're traveling, we're supposed to be lower, having lower stress levels, but. Um, there are some stressors that come up, so just taking things like adaptogens such as ginseng, ashwagandha, uh, holy basil, and then vitamin D levels obviously are, are super important too, just to make sure our immune defenses are are up to par. Um, and then with sleeping and feeling stiff after traveling, I really like to use magnesium. Um, that's probably one of my main favorite supplements, so yeah. Right. What about what about with the time change? Is is there like, you know, cause sometimes you're traveling and you might have jet lag if you're going to Europe. Like, is there anything we can deal with there? Yeah. Yeah. Mainly just, you know, going back to the basics. So like you said, uh, you like to have an exercise routine. It's actually been shown that exercising when you do get to a new time zone can prevent jet lag. So even if that's going for a walk. Um, and then having a good kind of bedtime routine, avoiding a lot of caffeine and heavy meals, um, and then the sun exposure that you can get that day. And then also melatonin is a common one that people will will take too. I have a friend who, when he travels, and, and we're talking about even going to Europe, he will pretend as though he's back in the Toronto time zone. So he does okay. every he does everything, including sleep and eat, on the same schedule, irrespective of whether, you know, he's like six hours away or eight hours away. And I've never Mm -hmm. been able to figure out how to like wrap my head around that and do that. But he swears by it. He says he doesn't get jet lag when when he just keeps to the Toronto time zone. Have you ever even tried that? A little bit. Yeah, I've kind of, you know, shifted meals a few hours ahead or or later. But that would just be helping to regulate your circadian rhythm because our circadian rhythm is when we're eating, moving, sleeping. So... Yeah, I could definitely see how that would uh, that would help. Okay, so the supplements that you mentioned, where where can we find them? <clears throat> yep, 
any any natural health food store, but just making sure that you're finding ones that are triple tested for purity, potency, and if you can see that it says a ISO certified lab, that can be helpful too. Right. Okay. What about our diet? How can we how can we make sure that we're eating a healthy diet when we're away from home, other than avoiding the buffet? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you don't necessarily have to completely avoid the the buffet. Well, um, you you if, don't, but I do. Anyways, go on. <laughs> go on. Okay. Yeah. No, I did. I just go for the the fruits and vegetables, anything that's that's high protein. Um, and then I'm al- I'm also someone who will pack my favorite uh, protein bars, trail mix stuff like that, um, just to keep my energy levels up. And, um, you know, it's you are on holidays, but it's trying to eat healthy for most of the time um, can help just feeling feeling good over there. But uh, I like to work by the 80-20 rule. So this is eating 80 or healthy for 80% of the time and then 20% indulging. So just giving yourself that time to or that room to indulge in the different flavors there and, and not having that guilt. So yeah, that works for me. Okay. So what is, what is, what does eating healthy look like for you? Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're mm-hmm. just focusing on plant-based diet or are there other things that you, you, you do? Yeah, I would say, uh, definitely making sure that I'm hydrated and eating, uh, enough protein. So if, you know, you're at breakfast buffet is just going for the, you know, the, boiled eggs and stuff like that and fruit, filling up on that. Um, and then, yeah, just having the snacks, like I said, um, and then just making sure my meals are, are balanced. So with a protein, vegetable, healthy carb, uh, healthy fats. Um, so just not really changing so much how you're eating when you're in, traveling, just trying to keep those same habits. I guess if you're not eating healthy here, it doesn't really make any difference if you're not eating healthy there. And if you know how to yeah. eat healthy here, you probably know how to eat healthy there. For, to my yeah. mind, the real issue is like, I want to celebrate. I want to have fun. I want to sample the local cuisine, I, you know, mm-hmm. like the local Amaros and, and wines mm-hmm. and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you do have to allow yourself a little bit of latitude. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just trying to do your best. Like my routine is to have oatmeal for breakfast every morning, but I know that's going to be impossible if I'm in Sicily, you know, like, so, mm-hmm. so like I, you know, you, you can't do the impossible and I don't think you should get wrapped mm-hmm. up in it, but you know, this, yeah. but this yeah. is, but, but by the same token, the Sicilians have gelato and cake for breakfast and you can't do that either. So you know, <laughs> there, there's a, there's a fine line. So, so what should travelers be wary of in your mm-hmm. opinion? Yeah, so just on that note of, you know, sampling local cuisine and stuff like that, um, you do want to be cautious of things like food trucks or or carts. So I know the, you know, going to the markets might be tempting and, you know, can sample different cuisine, but um, there could be risk of cross-contamination and exposure to um, food pathogens that can make you sick, but that's where, you know, taking the, doing the preventative measures like probiotics or finding a specific traveler's probiotic can, can help with that. Um, and then just staying hydrated. I, this is a pretty simple one, but I find people, I don't know if it's they're just excited and, and forget to uh, drink water or they're drinking more alcohol. Um, so just making sure that you're having something like bottled water and if you can't have bottled water, um, there are filters that people can put in their water bottles uh, when they are traveling 
or something natural that you can use is um, called grapefruit seed oil. Um, and this is kind of like a potent antimicrobial natural disinfectant. Um, I actually had traveled to India before, and I, I, I use this in my water, um, even in the bottled water, just for yeah. extra precaution. And, you know, I was actually, I was okay. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mexico, like, I, you know, I didn't drink the water, but, you know, mm-hmm. when they wash the fruit and vegetables, like, I was told after, you know, you always get, like, fruit with rinds or peels because then you mm-hmm. can just peel off the outer layer and then presumably the yeah. fruit inside, you know, exactly. d- doesn't need to be washed. I mean, it's, it's kind of common sense things, you know, like, so, for example, don't order the ribs in Puerto Vallarta, mm-hmm. you know, like, don't do that. <laughs> I, 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 wish, yeah. I wish I had my wisdom back when I ordered ribs in Puerto Vallarta. It was a big mistake. <laughs> I won't give you any more details. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about practical lifestyle choices that we can make while we're traveling? What, what would that entail? Mm-hmm. So walking is a really good one. Um, it can also help you, you know, maintain metabolism as you're uh, traveling, if you're eating more than you normally would. Um, I'm a big fan of stretching as well, just being stiff from being on, you know, buses or, or planes and stuff like that. And it can also help with circulation. Um, and then uh, a lot of times when people travel, they're kind of like working right to the, the last minute or they go back to work right away. But sometimes having like a day in between or if, if you can, just to get your body ready for traveling. And then when you come back, getting back into your routine. Um, and then something that I like to do as well is re- researching some healthy um, food options before I go. So I um, I have a gluten and dairy sensitivity. So for me, just knowing places that I can go to or I actually have a friend that's celiac, so she always has to research the restaurants beforehand or if someone, you know, needs to be lower sugar in their diet. So, yeah, that can all be helpful. You know, it's interesting, you know, so my uh, my son is anaphylactic. He has like so it's a little bit it's a little different proposition. Uh, he's hmm. allergic to fish and nuts. And I find North American food allergies aren't as understood even in Europe as they Mm -hmm. are here. And we used to, depending on which country we were traveling in, we would print out little cards in the language of the country that we were going to be in to explain the nature of the food allergy Mm -hmm. and the seriousness of it. Because if you don't do that, um, if they're not aware of it as a cultural issue, they may not respond in the way that you might expect them to, like particularly Uh if you're celiac or... You know, if you have lactose intolerance, you could find yourself being quite ill because somebody thought, oh, a, mm-hmm. little, a little pat of butter won't make a difference. Or, yeah. you, know, you know, like we fry everything in the same oil, fish and not fish, you know, and we've, yeah. come, we've come up against that. So my, my two cents yeah. worth is like, make sure you're communicating whatever issues you mm-hmm. have so that they can be dealt with. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really good uh, tip as well. What about on the way back? So you've had this wonderful trip. Now what? Just going back to the basics again, so prioritizing resting, um, getting back into a sleep routine, exercise routine, and then you can use melatonin again to get back into your your time zone if you did switch time zones. Um, I normally like to have like a big healthy plate of vegetables, so whether that's a salad or uh, cooked vegetables with high protein uh, just to, you know, make sure I'm getting enough energy and just limiting my processed foods and sh- or sugars just because 
I could have been exposed to different viruses and my immune system might be a bit low. So just making sure I'm not, you know, overindulging in sugar, alcohol, that kind of thing. Um, and then another thing is just to, you know, bring kind of my holiday mindset back as well. Like I, you know, I went on vacation for a reason. So I'm going to use that mindset going back into work and life. And yeah. Can I add one? So the cliche is, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? So, but, <laughs> yeah. but I think that's true of any trip. Like, like if you have overindulged or if you've gotten off your routine, I, mm-hmm. think, I think the easiest way to get back into it is not beat yourself up over what you may or may mm-hmm. not have done when you're away because you're away mm-hmm. and you're having a good time. And you can say to yourself, okay, I didn't, do, I didn't go to the gym in the hotel when I was away, but mm-hmm. I still walked around and I still had a great time. But now I'm back. And I'm not going to say, oh, I have to work out twice as hard because that makes it much harder to get back into your routine. I think you should mm-hmm. just say, okay, now I'm back and it's time to get back into my routine, period. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, some people might feel a bit of stress or anxiety going back to work and, you know, they're still feeling in holiday mode and just, you know, knowing it's going to take a few days to get back into routine and, um, yeah, and you're always going to have some nice pictures and memories to look back on. So Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, you're welcome. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Bram Busson is a biomedical engineering PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. He's currently doing research on improving cancer treatment using nanotechnology, and he also happens to be my son. Welcome to the show, Bram. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. So I thought I'd bring you on to explain a little bit about uh, nanobiology, because when you're explaining it to like friends and family, I actually think you do a really compelling job. So, Thank you. So, so what is a nanoparticle? So a nanoparticle is any piece of matter, like a particle, that is between one and 100 nanometers. So I know that doesn't really mean anything, so I'll explain a little bit. I'll give you an idea of the scale. So you might be able to imagine how big a centimeter is, right? Yep. And how a millimeter is a tenth of that. If you were to divide that by another, let's say, 100, you would get the width of a human hair, right? So you can still see that, but it's very small. Mm -hmm. 
divide that by 10,000 times and you have a nanoparticle. So a nanoparticle is roughly the size of a bacteria or a virus. And because of that, it can interact with the body in interesting ways that a drug like Advil might not be able to. Does that make sense? It does, because Advil has bigger particles? Is, is that what you're No, Advil, Advil's much smaller. If you were to take a nanoparticle and divide it by 10,000 again, that's how big Advil is. It's so small that your body understands what it's dealing with and can get rid of it, clear it from your body, destroy it, whereas a nanoparticle, they don't really know quite as well. And that leads to interesting interactions with the body and lets more things happen in medicine using it than you would without it. What is When people speak of nanomedicine, what do they mean? So nanomedicine is when you use any nanoparticle as medicine or to improve medicine. So I can give you one example, the COVID vaccines. So that's one way that it's used. So nanoparticles were in the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines because the mRNA, which I'm sure you might have heard of, is incredibly unstable. So if you were to just inject that, which is the active ingredient in the vaccine, it would get destroyed immediately by your body. So by putting it in a nanoparticle, you can protect it and hide it from the body's defenses so it gets where it needs to go. So here's an analogy I like to use for it. Let's say you want to ship a fancy glass vase to somewhere else. Would you want to just have the glass vase by itself being exposed to the elements, especially if it's like, let's say, icy outside. You might trip and fall and break the vase. So you might want to put it in bubble wrap to protect it from the body or in this case, slipping and falling on ice. The other main use of it is to get it to a specific place. So for example, when, when people take Advil, People only feel the effects of Advil where they're hurting, but really the Advil is going everywhere and you only feel it where you're not feeling the pain, which is fine for Advil because Advil is safe. But there are plenty of drugs we use in medicine that aren't safe. For example, chemotherapies. Chemotherapies are incredibly toxic. And if you just inject them into a person, um, you kind of have to pray and hope that it will be toxic to the tumor that you're treating in the case of cancer before it's toxic to the person you're treating. So by putting it into a nanoparticle, you can basically try and make the nanoparticle go right to the tumor instead of going everywhere. And going back to the analogy of shipping your vase, does it make more sense to send out a thousand vases or send out one vase that has postage that will have it go directly to where you want it to go if you were shipping it. Does that make sense at all? No, it, it does. So basically, it's, it's about the qualitative movement and delivery of the medicine as opposed to the medicine itself. So exactly. the, the nanoparticle isn't medicine. It's actually a delivery system. Exactly. And it's in a field known as drug delivery. Okay. So why would you want to use that instead of a standard drug? Well, for example, in the case of chemotherapy, it's quite toxic. So right. if, you, if you were to use a standard chemotherapy, it could go to your liver and cause liver failure, which is where most of it gets cleared. It could cause you to 
your muscles to wane away. It can cause your heart to stop because it's so toxic. But if you can target that cancer, I mean, the sorry, the chemotherapy to the tumor, you can avoid toxicity, which also means you can use more of it too, right? And another benefit of the nanoparticle for drug delivery is that you can bring more than one of whatever you're trying to bring into one nanoparticle. You could you could put a hundred particles of this chemotherapy into one nanoparticle as opposed to just injecting a hundred and hoping they go to the right place. So what is the science of the nanoparticle? So how do the nanoparticles know where to deliver the medicine? Are they well, di- are they different types of particles and how do you craft them? Well that's kind of what I'm working on right now. I'm trying to improve the methods of targeting. Right now, for cancer specifically, the drugs that are in use aren't actually targeted. They're just bringing a large dose of it to the tumor. So it is better than just injecting the chemotherapy and hoping it's less toxic to the rest of the body. But there are plenty of different ways to doing to do it. So one way is just to try a million different materials of nanoparticle and hope that one goes to the tumor. And that's a very crude, um, in science, we call that a buckshot approach or a shotgun, mm-hmm. where you just try a million things and hope one works. And that's actually how the COVID vaccines were designed. They wanted to do it quickly. So they made as many different designs as they could and test them all at once, hoping that one would work. And that's one way to do it. And it works. It does. But it uses a lot of resources and you need to be you need to have the resources of something like a large pharmaceutical company to even hope to achieve it. Uh, other approaches are to be more uh, rational approaches. So one way would be to Uh, This is called active targeting, and it would be put something that the tumor likes onto your nanoparticle and hope that the tumor takes it up. So that could be an antibody or even food for the tumor. Basically, get the tumor to think that it's eating food when it's taking up poison. Does that make sense? It does. So I guess then when you're creating a nanoparticle, you have to, like, it's very bespoke. In other words, you're creating a particular particle for a particular purpose, right? Yes and no. Uh, there are some, it depends what your goal is. Something like the COVID vaccine, yes, they had to design it so that it was safe for their mRNA, which was the active ingredient of the vaccine, but it was going everywhere in your body because that's kind of what you want for a vaccine. But if that's the case, you can just do it. And there are plenty of other applications of these non-targeted uh, nanoparticles. Um, it's, very, it's become more and more common in nutraceuticals recently, especially if you hear the term liposome in whatever supplement you're taking, that's actually a nanoparticle. A liposome is a specific kind of nanoparticle made from little bubbles of fat. Um, and there are more general ones. But for if you want to, tar- to get it to go to a specific kind of a specific tumor or a specific disease model, you might need to mess around with it. So I guess the more targeted nanoparticle would probably result uh, in dealing with a pathogen that everybody sort of knows a lot about, right? Like I yeah. guess you would take the scattershot approach if you didn't know what you were dealing with, i.e. COVID, because they didn't know a lot about it when they were trying to develop the resulting vaccine. But if you knew something like, so for example, a specific type of cancer, you could really tailor that nanoparticle, right? Exactly, right. And also cancer, we have treatments that 
work to some degree. And there's many, many people working on improving the therapies. So in that, there's not as much of a time crunch to get it done quickly. Whereas with COVID, there was no alternative, right? There was Mm -hmm. no vaccine. Everybody just needed it as soon as possible. So that scattershot approach was appropriate because there wasn't an alternative. We needed it as soon as possible. So the work that you're doing right now, I presume it's not it's not a scattershot approach. You're looking for tools that will actually help targets to specific known types of illnesses. Is that correct? Yes and no. So <laughs> I'm involved in two different projects. One of them is actually the exact opposite, where I'm coming up with very generalized studies. So in that one, What's actually, when you administer these nanoparticles, as I think I mentioned a little earlier, a lot of them end up going to the liver and that causes a lot of liver damage. So I'm actually, one of my projects is understanding why the liver interacts with the nanoparticles so intensely. And once you really understand it at a technical level, then you can start to come up with uh, strategies to prevent it. And this would be useful for most diseases outside of the liver where you're injecting nanoparticles, unless you want it to go to a liver, um, where, which it already does, if you want it to go anywhere else, you kind of need to block the liver. So I'm coming up with strategies to block off the liver without causing liver damage to improve delivery elsewhere, which is a very general strategy. But the other thing I'm working on is more specific to cancer and finding those specific niches to improve for a specific disease, if that makes sense. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. That was Bram Busson. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. What if there was a place that promised you leave better than when you came, where the sunshine never stops, the sleep is exceptional, and the food is the best you've ever had? What if you felt the years come off? That's what guests say about visiting the Cretan Dream Resort and Spa. With flights to Athens, Greece direct and available through Air Canada, you'll be glad you booked. Find special pricing directly on CretanDreamResort.gr. Hurry and book before it sells out. Find out why the Greeks love the island of Crete. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Welcome back to The Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Radha Metro Midkiff is a certified life coach and the executive director for the Integral Yoga Institute, New York. Her upbringing in yoga began at an early age, having been raised under the tutelage of Sri Swami Sachindananada at Yogaville. Her parents, Integral Yoga Ministers Bhagavan and Bhavani Metro, moved several times to ensure her and her five siblings received an Integral Yoga School education from first to twelfth grade. At a young age of 18, Radha was already certified as both a Hatha Yoga and Raja Yoga instructor. She was among a select group of four individuals to receive the direct blessing 
of Dharma confirmation from Swami Sachidananda. Again, wrong pronunciation, I'm sure. <laughs> a rare and highly coveted honor. Welcome to the show, Radha. How did I do? Did I get it right? <laughs> you were close. Sachidananda. Yeah, okay, I'm not. You know what? I'm, anytime that name comes up for the rest of the interview, you're going to say it, okay? We good? Okay, deal. <laughs> Okay, so we're here today. We're, we're talking about mindfulness and how it can help us physically and, and mentally. And, you know, I'm having one of those days. I, 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 you know, before, before we went on air, I think I told you, it's just, it's just one of those days. So how, how can mindfulness help us with stress reduction? Well, I think this is a great example, right? So here we are, we start having all of this stress, our stress response starts to trigger, and we start going, oh my gosh, my blood pressure is going up, right? The, the, um, the, uh, all the negative um, chemicals start being released into our system. And so one of the ways that we can start to reverse this is just like 30 seconds of breathing and mindfulness. So just taking a deep breath and focusing on the breath and bringing ourselves back to the present moment and realizing that 99.9% of the time when we're in the present moment, we're actually okay. It's when we start thinking about, oh my gosh, like Rada's going to be upset because the interview didn't start on time or um, I'm not going to be able to record today or my boss is going to be mad because I didn't get this in on time. It's all the projections that start to cause us the stress. So when we can bring ourselves back into the present moment, then we automatically start to signal to our system and to our brains, it's okay. We're all right. Calm down. And then we start to reverse the stress response. That makes a lot of sense. So related to stress, at least it is for me, because you know I can tend to sort of catastrophize when things start slipping away in the wrong direction. I'm, I'm like, I, I have a, a sort of a regimen to my life. And, and if I go off course, it, it, it can, it can end badly. Mindfulness can help us with those emotional responses too, right? Yeah, it absolutely can. Because again, so much of that emotional response that we're experiencing is like you said, it's catastrophizing. It's saying what's happening, happening to me in this moment is going to create a bad result in the future. And so if we can get out of, like, thinking about what's going to happen in the future and just coming back into this moment and saying, all I can really control is what's going on in this moment. So if I stay present right here, then I can actually avoid whatever catastrophe I think is going to happen because I'm going to be more um, present and able to make the decisions that I need to make because I'll be focused as opposed to just being like having our mind jumping all over the place. And this is a, this is a practice. It's just like exercise, right? You've got to repeatedly do it so that you kind of build up this muscle so that it becomes easier and easier to be in the present moment. What are some of the tools that we can use to help us with emotional regulation? So one of the amazing things about, um, our systems is we have this sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system in our body. And so the breath actually is related to these systems. So when we inhale, we kind of stimulate the sympathetic, which gives us a lot of energy, but it also tends to be um, uh, associated with anxiety. When we exhale, we kind of calm everything down and slow it down, but it also can be related to depression. So what we do is we use this mindful breathing to stimulate the sympathetic, calm down the parasympathetic. And as we do the breathing in and out, in and out, it starts to actually regulate our system. So 
so that the epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol, all of these chemicals start to um, go down in our body and we start to increase dopamine, serotonin, um, all the um, beautiful chemicals that we want flowing around in our system. And we can do this really naturally just by using the breath. So that's in the moment, but sort of a, a hot ticket item in mindfulness, if there is such an animal, is the concept of journaling. So, so how does journaling come into play when we're trying to regulate our emotions and, and our reactions? Because obviously you're not going to journal in the moment. If you're, if you're upset, you're not going to whip out your notebook. How, how, do, how does it help? Right. So this is sort of like a more long term. So not so much with the mindfulness, but it's also helping us um, regulate our emotions when we can set aside time to sit down and write about them. Because what we've noticed is that when you express them, whether you express them out loud to somebody or you express them on paper, what they found is it kind of has the same result of allowing you to process through whatever's going on and let go of it. So, you know, let's just say your partner and you were getting into a fight and you wanted to say a lot of horrible things because you were angry in that moment. Now, if you can use the mindfulness techniques to stop that in the moment and say, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm not going to say these things right now then you can go and you can journal it out and you can get out anything you want to say. So then you're not doing, you know, that's doing feeling or, you know, the situation where you start having the conversation over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in your head, we can journal and actually get that conversation out of our head and on paper. And then you just rip it out and toss it in the fire or the trash or whatever. It's not something you actually have to share or express you can actually have the same result of letting it go, just like, you know, how you might want to let it go on your partner. Instead, just let it go in the notebook and then be done with it. So the act of expressing it creates the fulfillment or, or brings your brings your reaction into a state of peace? Because, like, I, I don't yeah. know. So the beauty of our minds is that our minds don't really actually know the difference between reality and um, sort of imagination. <laughs> Okay. It's why things like roller coasters or like movies are so enticing for us, right? Like we get lost in the emotions of a movie and we go through this whole range of emotions just by watching a movie because our brains don't know. They're just in a moment experiencing whatever. So when you're actually writing it out, your brain kind of thinks that you're processing through it. It thinks that you had that conversation. It thinks that you had actually some sort of resolution around the situation. And you can even journal both sides of the conversation if you want until you get to a resolution in that conversation that feels good. And also the really amazing thing is you can do this with people who passed away. So people who have unresolved stuff with parents or um, you know, siblings that maybe passed on, you can actually write these conversations and you can actually change the way the brain is operating just by writing. It's, I mean, the science around this is so extraordinary that we're really just starting to understand how the brain doesn't actually react to reality. It reacts more to sort of what we prescribe for it. It's interesting. I have a troublesome relationship with somebody that's close to me, and and my daughter suggested that it might be beneficial for me to to write down how, like, the things that are upsetting me about that relationship. And I've sort of balked at doing that because I I just felt like it, it wouldn't manifest. Like, I write for a living in addition to, in addition to hosting this show, you know, I publish a magazine. And, you know, if I'm feeling something, I'll put it down on paper, but I expect people to read it. I don't think I've ever written something that I didn't intend others to see. That's, that's kind of an interesting concept. 
It would be such an incredible exercise for you because you know the power of words, right? You know that you can change people's emotions just based on what you write. Well, you can do that same thing for yourself. Based on what you write, you can change your emotions around a relationship or around a situation. Because again, we're, we're programming our brains. We so often think that just because we think it, that makes it true. But actually, our brains are just like this reaction of chemicals and what we ate for breakfast and like all of these different things are happening that have no reality about like our situation around us. And we have more control over our brains than we realize. And again, this is where the the science, like especially Western science, is really backing up what we've known in yoga for 5,000 years. But Western science is now able to measure it. So we can see like, wow, when you write this out, like... I would encourage you just to try to write out that conversation and eventually write it to the point where it becomes something that you would like the conversation to be and just witness what happens to your own brain and your own feelings around it and how it starts to release emotions. Because again, when we repeat a thought over and over again, it's going to create the same chemical reaction in our body and our brain. We can think a negative thought is going to create negative reactions. We can think a positive thought is going to create positive reactions. So what we're trying to do is start training ourselves to move over to the positive reaction over and over again. If somebody were interested in journaling, and this sounds like kind of like a silly question, but, but how would you recommend them to get started? Like, you know, like, because I write for a living and I, I still, I'm, I'm kind of bulking at how I would start doing this. Is it, is it just kind of like, don't wait until you're upset about something and just get into the practice of doing it and, and then see where it goes or, or can like a fight or something trigger this and that's okay. Go either way, but if it's something you're interested in kind of exploring and developing, what I always suggest is people sit down and make sure that you're writing at least two pages. There seems to be something that triggers in us when we kind of get down towards like the, you know, one and a half pages in of writing. I don't know if it's time oriented or space oriented or why, but for some reason, when we get that far into it, um, it starts to trigger something else in our brain and we start stop like controlling what we're saying. And so just sit down and just start writing and just say, I'm going to not stop writing until I write two pages. And it starts to reach down into our subconscious and some stuff starts to come out and it really will start to flow the more you do that so that when you actually sit down to do this journaling, you'll be able to access that subconscious stuff a lot faster. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. 
For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Leo B. Twiggs is the Director of Medical Affairs at Aspira Women's Health. Leo B. has a wide range of work experience in the medical field. Leo B. started their career in 1978 at the University of Minnesota Medical School in Minneapolis, where they worked as a professor until 1999. Then in 2000, they joined the University of Miami as a professor at the medical school. Leo B. later became a professor and chair at the University of Miami, Leonard M. Miller School of Medicine from 2003 through to 2011. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk, I call it the big C. In particular, we're talking about ovarian cancer. Um, what is a woman's risk of ovarian cancer? There's about a 1% chance in time of getting ovarian cancer. But more importantly uh, is what people can do uh, to uh, decrease their risk. And one of the most important things is uh, for, a, for a person, for a woman to know her family history. And, uh, you know, Families are big and they're all over the place and they're sometimes hard to, to uh, understand. But it's important for anybody to know uh, what, their, what their relatives, uh, what disease the relatives have because that can help them. The other thing is uh, with what comes to ovarian cancer is that if you have symptoms, abdominal symptoms, bloating, not feeling well, listlessness, uh, change in bowel habits and those, and see your doctor and have an ultrasound done. So that, those are the two major things that a person can do for themselves to help them ameliorate the risk of ovarian cancer. When you're talking about hereditary risk, I would presume that, like, you know, parents and grandparents are more relevant than, than other relatives. Uh, am I right about that? Exactly. Parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts, uh, siblings, uh, those are the people that you need to know the family history. If they've had ovarian cancer, then your risk is higher. Yeah, so uh, those are the things that you can discuss with your with your uh, primary care provider. So when when we're talking about uh, sort of the indicia of ovarian cancer, I think the things you mentioned, bloating and and sort of feelings of discomfort uh, in the bowels, that sounds to me like something that could be all sorts of different things. Like so, for example, I actually had some health issues earlier this year with exactly those. Uh, symptoms and it turned out to be a, a perforated colon. Um, it, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like those types of symptoms would have anything to do with with the ovaries. Like that, that seems odd. To that's me. exactly right. That's exactly, right. and that's one of the problems that we face is that if you can get a vaginal ultrasound to assess the size of the ovaries when you're having these symptoms, that uh, that puts you on on if the ovaries are enlarged, we call it a nexal mass. And uh, if the ovaries are enlarged, then that can lead you to uh, find the ovarian uh, cancer early with these minimal symptoms. You mentioned an ultrasound. Are there any other tests that are available to help screen for this? Well, we're not really screening for it. We're, we're doing diagnostic tests. We don't have okay. a screening test for ovarian cancer. As you know, screening tests are uh, tests that decrease the, the mortality of, of the disease in the population. We don't have that yet. We're not smart enough yet. We're still learning. But we do have diagnostic tests. We have a test uh, that our company has uh, promulgated, which uh, which allows us to give you a risk assessment of whether or not the ovarian enlargement or a nexal mass enlargement is ovarian cancer. And it gives you a chance to say yes or no, is there ovarian cancer there? 
Our test is called Overwatch, and it's a, a test with if you have an exo mass, an ultrasound to find an exo mass, or even CT scan. It gives you a 99.7% chance there's no cancer there. So that really helps the clinician and the and the patient plan their plan their treatment. If you have enlarged ovaries and it isn't cancer, what what would be the cause of that? Well, first of all, the ovaries, uh, as you know, in the premenopausal state, the ovaries grow, grow and make eggs. That's right. what they do every month. So they change inside. That's called a physiological change in the ovary. So there's a pathological change in the ovary when it gets too big, and that's what we're looking at. So we're trying to distinguish between the physiological, the normal change in the size of the ovaries versus the abnormal size of the ovaries. So this test that you're doing, is it invasive? Like, what does it consist of? It's just a, it's just a blood test. Uh, it's paid for by most of the insurance companies. Uh, Medicaid, Medicare, for, for example, pays for it. Lots of insurance companies pay for it. So, uh, And it gives you uh, your risk, and then you can decide what to do with, the, with whether there's surgery indicated or not, or not, or just follow the patient, depending on the situation. So is it possible for a woman to monitor her adnexal mass instead of having surgery? Like if I, I presume if it is cancer, you'd, you'd want to treat it right away. Is, is yeah, surgery the only answer or like how does this work? Yeah, there's two ways. First of all, if the, uh, the, over, the over enlargement is indicative of cancer, you operate right away. We have a test that tells you where, where you should have the operation done by a G1 oncologist uh, or a general gynecologist. That particular test is called oval over one plus, and that's uh, FDA cleared. But that's for people who need surgery. Most patients don't need surgery. So our overwash test is, is, is a bigger test. I mean, a test that encompasses more people. And this is the test that just basically tells you the chance of there being ovarian cancer. So 99.7% chance that uh, there's no ovarian cancer if the test is negative. And uh, that can be done in the doctor's office, the results within a week or so. Okay, so so then the tool is used sort of on an ongoing basis to monitor the situation. Is that is that it what you're can, suggesting? It can be. It can be depending on the clinical situation, and obviously, uh, the test is, is 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 made for that. But also, you remember, there's all kinds of evidence uh, that you uh, that the clinician is going to use uh, symptoms, ultrasound, possible CT scans, ultra imaging. And other other issues. Uh, so again, uh, that's, it's used in combination with all the clinical factors that the, that uh, are are derived from the patient's um, exam. Okay, so it, you said it was a blood test. So, what is this test for? Is it is it some sort of biomarker? Other than that, or okay, we're trying to give the clinician a, a, a risk of whether there's cancer there. Yes, the test has five different uh, factors in it, and it's. Uh, it's been that uh, we use uh, special uh, computer techniques to ad- to adjust the levels, so we can tell uh, whether or not there's cancer there. We use the CA one twenty five, the HE four, and three other markers to tell us whether or not uh, there's anything happening with respect to the patient. So, and it's been studied in ten thousand patients in multiple countries, so we know that uh, the test has uh, a firm foundation in science. The testing, though, is those things that you mentioned. Forgive me, because I'm not a doctor. Are are those hormones? Are those genes? Like what? What? Are, what? Literally, no, they're, are they're, you testing they're, for? They're uh, they're protein proteins in the blood. Uh, they're not they're not genes. They're proteins in the blood. They're 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 products of uh, of uh, uh, in in the serum that are, are that are adjusting that that are produced in the serum by uh, all parts of the body. 
What are the factors? So, so if, if somebody unfortunately does test positive or there's further investigation, what, what are the criteria for that person? What should they be thinking about as to whether or not they should be proceeding to surgery? Yeah, well, if the test comes back negative, uh, there, there's no, the risk is low, uh, that's good. If it comes back indeterminate or positive, we call it indeterminate, then, then the, the clinician needs to evaluate the patient based on that, uh, that result. And uh, the test is obviously not very helpful because you have to use all different kinds of uh, imaging and just decide. If we do an over one plus, which is the blood test that's used when you think you need to do surgery, that particular test gives you the chance of making sure that the patient is operated by a GYN oncologist because we found that if patients have early ovarian cancer, survivals are higher when the GYN oncologist subspecialist operates on the patient. I don't think anybody decides to have surgery is is making an easy decision, but why is the decision to proceed with surgery, you know, why is it so relevant and why should it not be taken lightly? Well, it's, it's, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. Lots of people have ovarian enlargement, but not many people have ovarian cancer. So we don't want to take everybody's ovary out because if we take everybody's ovary out, then we have side effects from ovarian removal, which we've learned over the last decade that uh, ovarian removal causes uh, 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 multiple health problems. So what we're trying to do is tailor make the ovarian removal based on something that's really there rather than something that just be preventative. In the past, we used to take people's ovaries out to prevention. Right. But now we're not doing that because we we have realized that the oophorectomy or removal of ovary or multiple ovaries, you have two ovaries, causes uh, untoward health effects in the patient. Is that the only result of surgery? Like it's either a removal? Is is that the only surgical tool we have or are there, are there partial removals? Yeah, that, that's a good question. That's exactly the right question. The problem with the, with the, when they have an ovarian enlargement is it's usually cystic and you can't really just biopsy the ovary like the cervix or other, other you can just do biopsies of, but you can't biopsy the ovary because it, 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 it is, it's not a, a unilateral kind of disease. You have to, uh, so consequently, you could also uh, spell, uh, spill cells and, and cause it to be up, what we call upstaged or decreased survival rates. So therefore, we recommend that the ovaries not be biopsied. If uh, somebody was interested in learning more about this procedure, where should they go? They should go to asperwomenshealth.com, our, our, our website, uh, and take a look at our, our products. It also has some very good educational uh, uh, tools there for people. Uh, anytime you go to, you can also go to the National Cancer Institute and write ovarian cancer in there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, it's good talking to you. Thanks again. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Caitlin Zorn, ND, Bram Bussin, Rada Metro Midkiff, and Leo B. Twiggs. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The winter issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. 
If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie@thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.